Резонанс FM. Лондон 104.4. Изкуството да слушаш. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture, with me, your host, Juliette Christensen, on Resonance 104.4 FM. In this week's walk along the frontiers of research into images and objects, our theme takes a much broader approach as we turn to examine the idea of the art school itself. With the seismic changes in higher education over the last five years, the role of the art school has become something of a hot, urgent and burning topic in the field of visual and material culture, not least because communities of scholars and practitioners are setting out to challenge the conservative orthodoxy that the arts are a private benefit rather than a public good, but also perhaps because the arts have become something of a piñata for the humanities in general in the public discourse around higher education. Certainly art schools have been and are the very real powerhouses of British culture. British art school graduates have a long pedigree of creating work that has set the global agenda in their fields, from Hearst, Emin et al., from Goldsmiths, through to the head of designer Apple, Johnny Ive, a graduate from Northumbria, and the Central St. Martin's fashion graduates, McQueen, McCartney and Galliano. However, as I'm sure we will explore in this show, making arguments for the art school on economic grounds is rather a wrong-footed approach, although at times entirely pragmatic. For in truth, art schools are, paraphrasing Oscar Wilde, too important to be taken seriously. Joining me today to discuss the history and the role of the art school are the art historian Beth Williamson, the fine artist Matthew Cornford, the historian, the writer rather, John Beck, and the writer Emily Labarge. And in a departure to the usual format for this show, this episode is going to take more of the form of a discussion-based show as we collectively explore our theme today. Don't forget you can see the images and objects that we are speaking about through going to our Tumblr, paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com. We are tweeting through at paperweightnews and you can use the hashtag paperweightradio to join the conversation. Our first guest today is Beth Williamson. She's a previous guest on the show and a writer and researcher based in London. From 2009 to 2014, she was a postdoctoral research fellow on Tate's Art School Educated Research Project. Her research ranges across the field of modern British art and art pedagogy, especially post-1950, and she's writing a monograph on the art theorist Anton Ehrensweig. Is that right? Have I done this That's right? That's right, yeah, yeah. Ehrensweig. to be published by Ashgate. Hello, Beth. Welcome so much to today's show. I'm so glad that you could come back and, thank and join you for, us. Thank you for having me back. It's lovely to be back. Um, I'm going to ask you a very, very broad question to start our conversation, and that's, that is this. So since about 2010... There's been this renewed interest in the history and practice of the art school. So, for example, UCL's conference, Art Schools, Invention, Invective and Radical Possibilities, or through to the project that you worked on at the Tate, Art School Educated. Why do you think, having worked on this project, there's this been this re-attending to art schools? Well, I think everything's changing so quickly now, and um, with the crisis in funding and students and, and teachers worrying about the future of the art school, I think it's, it's only natural that we look back to the history and, and see where similar struggles have taken place in the past. So this economic crisis has resulted in a kind of re-attention to the history of, of the art school f- that you have been undertaking? I think so, yeah. That's mainly economic driven. That's a kind of interesting point for us to consider later in the, in the conversation. Um, two of the figures that you're particularly interested in in the history of art education, and again, do correct me if I get this wrong, uh, Harry Thubron and the man you're writing a book about, Anton Ehrensweg um, at Goldsmiths. And starting with Thubron, can you just explain for our audience who he was and how his approach to art school education was so in- innovative at its time? Well, Harry Thubram was a, a bit of a maverick, really, and he was uh, an art teacher best known for his teaching at Leeds College of Art in the 1950s uh, and also at Leicester. And then he came and taught at Goldsmiths as well later on in his career when he was much older. And... His approach to teaching was really about creating a studio space where students could work really quite intuitively. So he was working at a point in time when the idea of art education was about instruction and about learning from the life and, uh, you know, set exercises in drawing and painting and sculpture. And he wanted to do something different. So he was he was 
encouraging students to work in a much more intuitive fashion and really at the beginnings of uh, what was known as basic design in this country. And did that come out of some of the work from, from Herbert Reed? That's right, yeah. Um, he was... Thubron was uh, really interested in, in Reed's book that's called uh, Education Through Art and his ideas about child art and the way that, that children uh, paint and draw quite intuitively when they're young without being self-conscious. And it was those kinds of ideas that he wanted to experiment with, with, um, you know, with, with students in the art school. And how did this idea of intuition kind of manifest itself in, into, in the classroom or in the, in the art practice studio? Well really it was just about giving students a starting point and then letting them take, uh, take work forward in whatever way they, they felt they wanted to so that there wasn't anything controlled or set about it. And in terms of Ehrenzweig, I'm determined to get his name right, uh, his approach was much more psychoanalytical. But you argue no less radical at this time. How was his teaching practice considered to be so radical? Well, yeah, he, was, he wasn't actually teaching... Um he wasn't teaching art as such. He was teaching a course that was called the Art Teacher's Certificate Course at Goldsmiths uh, from 1964 to 66. So he was taking artists who had already, already been through their initial training and teaching them to be art teachers in, in schools. And his approach was he was very interested in psychoanalysis. And this is, you know, you have to remember it's at a time, it, particularly in London, when psychoanalysis was, was just kind of in the air, really. Um, there was, you know, people like Melanie Klein and, and Donald Winnicott were all discussing their ideas with artists and um, Ehrenzweig saw the teaching studio uh, almost as a kind of clinical space. So he, he was interested in helping students uh, get over, unblock, he called it, unblock uh, things that were holding them back in, in their own practice because he thought if he could help them do that, then they could do the same thing when they came to teach children. Okay, I've got kind of two things to, to, to kind of come back from what you just said. One that's so interesting in teaching in teaching uh, in that space and treating it as a kind of space of psychoanalysis. How do, how did the students who came to him, who ca had come through a much more traditional arts education, ending up with him to 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 study for this certificate at Goldsmiths? What was the um, I don't know. What was the, what was their reaction to being taught in this way? I suppose. Uh, it, Is there any documents? Uh, it it varied. I mean, I have interviewed some of them, so it's it, it varied a great deal. And either they couldn't cope with it at all, and they left the course. And there's uh, undocumented reports, shall we say, that that some students actually had a nervous breakdown with this kind of uh, approach. Uh, but but the people who embraced it uh, and really felt they benefited from it um, are, are very loyal to him in those kind of ideas. Uh, there's an artist, London artist David Barton, who uh, I've got to know over a number of years doing this research and he taught in, in schools for many years and he still works in that way and he's uh, still committed to that way of working. With Ehrenzweig, I noticed in the article that you wrote in the journal Visual Culture in Britain that he came over in the early 40s from Germany as an exile uh, and then was put into an internship camp here. Obviously, it's 42 we're speaking about that he, he gets released. Is, is his position as a kind of outsider, is that something that can drive his, his kind of individual take on teaching and how to teach art, do you think? To th psychoanalyse him in a way, I suppose. Uh, well, he came here in '38, actually. Uh, okay. Yeah, as the you know, um, as a result of the Anschluss in uh, Vienna, and before that, he was trained as a lawyer. So he was very much an outsider in terms of art education because his training was as a lawyer. He was interested in art. He was interested in psychology and psychoanalysis, and had done some informal training at the Wiener Verstadt in Vienna before he left and then when he came here he saw that as his opportunity to really uh, follow his follow his heart if you like and do, do what he really wanted to do which was really engage with and, and teach art so that was his break from uh, from being a lawyer which had been a kind of family business if you like. Okay I have one final question for you and that's that's really to do with 
the overall kind of arching aims of the project um, in terms of looking at the history of these two uh, arts educators. Certainly at the time that they were working, there was that drive in kind of fine art education towards ideas around individual authorship and personal practice and around the idea of the maverick or the individual, which we can see in the 1950s and 60s. However, now the emphasis on art practice is much more to do with collaboration and uh, socially engaged practice. How does the work of the two arts educators that you've been working on tie into or inform our current debates around art school education, do you think? Or do they offer us a way through, I suppose? I think it gives us a... Taking historical examples allows us to look at much more recent developments through a kind of historical lens, if you like, to give us that bit of critical distance to um, assess what's happening and, and see how valuable it might be in different ways. Um, and it's still about, I, th I think, the kinds of uh, developments that are happening now are, are still about experimentation it's still about it's still sometimes about radical courses that do things in a completely different way but often those are it the, i think the interesting thing now is that often those are driven by students so they're kind of students self-organizing rather than uh art teachers like the braun and Ehrenzweig taking the lead emily you're nodding your head do you want to come in here because in terms of how students are self-organizing yeah, well, I was just thinking about um, the difference between teaching theory and letting theory inform teaching practices, which seems sort of like an interesting point when you're talking about psychoanalysis within the college. And I was thinking about, I think his name is Roy Ascot, you know, his yeah, teaching. Roy, yeah. So it's like really different methodologies being employed within arts colleges. I don't see that happening so much anymore. Um, I'm not sure why. So my experience at the RCA is that a lot of people, in terms of wanting kind of different ways of practicing, are finding this, these ways to self-organize and sort of um, work outside of the rubric of the arts college, which is obviously supported by the college, but the drive is coming from from, from the below student body. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matthew, you've been an arts educator for many years. I have. Have you seen these changes in action on the ground, so to speak? I think I've. To a degree I have. I mean, I'm fortunate in running a quite unusual course myself, which is called Fine Art Critical Practice, which um, seems to be a course which is in a sort of sense of crisis a lot of the time. About oh, really? What, which, in a good way. In a no, 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 that's always productive. Way, in the sense of it doesn't have a set way of doing things. And, uh, and we're balancing a lot, or, or, or trying to balance, the, 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 the dynamic between practice and theory in, in the studio. And... Um, is this at undergraduate and postgraduate level? No, it's undergraduate. Okay. It's degree level at, at the University of Brighton, where I work. And um, I think studios are very interesting places for conversations to take place because um, they're quite unlike seminar rooms and lecture theatres, which are quite often bookable spaces, which are quite formal. They've got sort of junk in them and stuff, and it creates a different atmosphere. Um, but I'm also worried about the studio as being an almost over dominant model of what art education is everything has to come into or be made in the studio and this becomes I think quite restrictive so I'm both it certainly does with this increase in undergraduates who are coming in I've noticed something over the years which is that studio space is actually getting a lot smaller and so students are actually going out and hiring external studios because well, that's where they well, have the space there to work we, we're fortunate in that we... I we, don't mean you personally. Well, well, we are fortunate <laughs> and we have studio space, but we've actually took the radical step of getting, of not um, doing any of our second year teaching in a studio at all. Our Where do you teach? Well, in the wider world, in, in the streets of Brighton, on the beaches, on the South Downs, in, the, in other parts of the building. It sounds like Churchill. We will teach them on the beaches. We'll <laughs> we will teach, teach them anywhere. Them anywhere. Well, that, well that, it's more <laughs> facilitate the ability of the students to make something in the world. And yeah. um, I think my, my reservations about studio overly centering on the studio is that this is a kind of magical, wonderful space which is going to be very difficult to replicate once students graduate. Yes. Very difficult indeed, especially, you know, with the costs of rent, the, the, the debts that they've got. And I'm interested in, if we can, creating situations for students to be, you know, the self-organised student and to think of possibilities other than I must have a studio and do painting in it or sculpture yeah, yeah, yeah. in it. Um, and but also this notion of kind of socially engaged practice comes to the fore when you're teaching somebody in a street rather than maybe a dream palace of a university undergraduate studio. Yeah, it, it can do. But I... I 
Is that the kind of work that's coming out of your students? It's 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 a rag bag. It's all sorts of stuff is happening. That I mean, some of it's very conversational, relational based yeah. work. Others is deeply sort of obscure, odd, overlooked kind of interventions that only three people in the world will ever see. And I'm I'm happy with that. Oh, it sounds like I'm happy with that too. Oh, yeah, it sounds like a great place to go and study. Emily, you're frowning now. Come on. Oh, no, I was just picking up on something else that sort of Beth seemed to mention um, in a sideways sort of way, just the value of the polymath, I think, within within an arts, like the process of making art and, and the practice. And it seems a really interesting idea to me to sort of push stu- for pu- students to be pushed to learn that different ideas happens and happen in different kinds of places and then your job as an artist is actually to put them together. Maybe that's actually more interesting and challenging than just having a studio-based practice or just a lecture, a lecture theatre scenario. Um, but it raises interesting questions around the notion of institutions, of the institution. Uh, John, have you got a sense of, of how the institution plays a role in this new way of, of creating work? Well, I think it, it's interesting what Beth was saying about her kind of historical examples, is that these are people who are working inside institutions in and, and trying to find new kind of models inside a kind of existing institution, as opposed to some of the more contemporary examples, which seem to sort of maybe be looking for sort of extra institutional spaces. Yeah. Um, there is a question there, I suppose, about you know where the where the support comes from from those extra institutional projects, and, and and whether it shouldn't be that the institutions are kind of sort of deconstructing themselves from the inside rather than kind of sort of squeezing out innovative practices. I think that's a really interesting thing to consider: this notion of deconstructing from the inside in terms of also what happens with the kind of economics of higher education at the same time when you put those two ideas next to one another. One thing that came over in your work as well is you also look at um, free schools, uh, people who self-organise into their own schools, not the free schools that are part of Gove's policy, <laughs> no. as it were, but the, but the notion of a community of teachers and students setting up a, a school together, that's my sense of, of, of it. Do you want to briefly mention? Uh, yeah, th- I mean, I, I touched on that. I've touched on that a little bit. Um, j- just thinking about, because it's something that's, that's really current, that's been happening for the last maybe five years, uh, and, and it's, like Emily said, it's, you know, students self-organising, and I think that's always interesting to see how people actually uh, find ways to, to work in new ways to get around the kinds of uh, restrictions that they might feel are, are there in the art school and, uh, and, and do that for themselves. So uh, it was just looking at that and thinking how there might be difference, where there might be differences and similarities to the, the kinds of... Uh, maverick interventions of, of the Thibrons and the Ehrenzweigs. Thank you very much, Beth. Now, you've chosen our first track today, and I have to say, you've chosen a wonderful track. It's one of my absolute favourites, so I might croon a bit while it's playing played. <laughs> Do you want to introduce it briefly? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Nat King Cole and it's Mona Lisa. Thank you. That was Mona Lisa by Nat King Cole, chosen by Beth Williamson. You're listening to Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, your host, Juliet Christensen. And don't forget to follow our Tumblr, paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com to see the images and objects we're discussing and to find links to other material. We're tweeting through at Paperweight News and we use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. Our second guests today come as a pair. They're John Beck and Matthew Cornford. Matthew is the course leader of, for Fine Art Critical Practice and Professor of Fine Art at the University of Brighton. He works in collaboration with David Cross and under the name Cornford and Cross, they have exhibited widely throughout the, throughout the US and um, Europe. In London, their work has been exhibited at the ICA, at the Photographer's Gallery and at the South London Gallery. And in addition, they've done a number of site-specific projects in England, including the Delaware Pavilion. 
John is a professor of English at the University of Westminster and he writes mainly on British and American literature, art and photography. Together, John and Matthew are working together on a project to find and document the former art schools in Britain. In April 2012, the Journal of Visual Culture published their article, The Art School in Ruins. It's an excellent article. I do recommend you seek it out. And in 2014, the Centre for Useless Splendour at Kingston University published their book, The Art School and the Culture Shed. Hello and welcome. We've already discussed briefly today uh, various art school topics, but I wanted to discuss your wonderful book that... um, that you've sent over. Thank you so much. And in order to, to start our discussion about the art school and the culture shed, I want to start not with an image or an object or a, or a piece of architecture, but actually with a statistic from your book, which I think offers us a highly effective and effective way into your work. During your research into the history of the art school, you found an Institute of Education directory, which I presume is from the mid 20th century, is that right? around that period? Yes, I think it would be, yeah. Yeah, and in it there were listed 180 recognised art schools um, and only 28 universities. And we fast forward to the second decade here now of the 21st century and we find that there are only 11 specialist art and design schools and there are 119 universities. This statistic really opened up for me ways of thinking about the development of the art school in Britain. And I just wondered if you could talk about what this statistic opens up for you uh, in terms of how we think about the development of the art school. Well, I think one of the things about it is that people still use the term art school all the time. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's a sort of common term without really reflecting on what that actually used to mean. It used to mean something which was quite distinct from university higher education. Quite often it was a, it was a modest building or institution in a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a provincial town. And over time, there's been this amalgamation of these art schools, independent art schools, into first polytechnics and then new universities. And whilst they may, and I believe Brighton does it well, try and maintain something of its spirit, it is inherently different, very different, to what it would have been 30, 40 years ago. Because you two met at an an art school, is that right? Yes, you you have to go back to the early 80s, really. (laughs) But um, although I've spent most of my working life in English departments in universities, when I left school, I spent a year at Great Yarmouth College of Art and Design, which Matthew also attended. And so it's that kind of, I guess it's that long kind of memory that that we have of those institutions that are no longer there. Yeah, um, certainly certainly the art schools that I mentioned in my introduction, places like Central St. Martins and Goldsmiths, they are kind of the global names of art and design in an important way. Great Yarmouth. Yeah. It offers something else in terms of art and design practice. Something else entirely, really, but in in all sorts of ways. Yeah. I I suppose what interested us was not those kind of global brands, but those relatively anonymous places which were at one point central sort of buildings within small and medium-sized towns across the country and in an awful lot of cases those institutions are no longer there for all sorts of reasons you know some which are kind of sort of pragmatic economic but also as you suggested in your, your discussion of the statistic that there's there's this kind of massive change that's taken place over the last couple of generations um, in terms of what constitutes art education and where it takes place as well. So we became you know, increasingly interested in that because it's something that we kind of experienced firsthand a long time ago. Um, in your project that you, where you've been taking photographs of, of these abandoned buildings or buildings that no longer exist, it really exposed for me that landscape that exists between what are talked about as the creative and culture industries and urban regeneration, the relation, the really complex relationship between the two. How for you has turning to document the art school in ruins through photography worked to make this relationship visible? Well, it, it's, it started with, with, with a, a, a sort of visit back to Great Yarmouth. To I, I, I was aware that the, the, that the college had closed and ceased to, ceased to be a, in, you know, an independent art school, but what really shocked me was that the building was actually for sale. Uh, you know, it was for sale for £750,000 at that point, with the idea being that it was going to be developed into luxury flats. Um, the kind of the the trope of come and live in an old art school, well, you know that, that that's well, well, that's actually economically happened. valuable. Well, that's happened to a great economic effect in uh, to to the original art school at St Martin's, of course, where the flats there are upwards of sixteen million pounds, I understand. But what was shocking was that there was there was thousands and thousands of people would have graduated from Great Yarmouth with, you know, 
if not degrees, but certificates and diplomas. And that institution is no longer there. It's no longer present in the world. It's been erased, effectively. And we started to think, well, has that happened elsewhere? Was this unique? And, of course, what we found out, that it's happened again and again and again, repeatedly in various forms and in towns, the length and breadth of Britain. But also, what, I mean, making these journeys, it started to be a project which was not just nostalgia looking back to some golden age, but it was about Britain now. Okay, so we've closed an art school, or we've knocked it down, or we've turned it into, you know, luxury flats. And what else have we done? Well, there's these this phenomena of these culture sheds, which the Arts Council and other other you know funding bodies have poured many many millions into. And you go to somewhere, an extreme example like West Bromwich, where you have a very modest art school building, grand in its way, um, terracotta frieze on the front. You know, a sort of inspirational building, Edwardian um, architecture, and then with the windows smashed and the doors bolted and a fence around it, and then literally five minutes away, you have this vast shed called the Public, which you know no one really knows how much it costs, but it's upwards of seventy million pounds. And so this is a really different way of looking at and thinking about um, art and culture in a in a small town. Certainly when I read the title and the, and the name that you'd given to these places like the public, the notion of it being a culture shed, I thought, oh, that's quite homely. It's quite, you know, domesticated. Oh, how? And then you, when I read the text and actually it's a scathing critique of actually what is the purpose of these these incredible, you know, like Will Allsop designed 70 million pound buildings and actually the, the, the original regional art school has kind of been left and had its doors kicked in both metaphorically and quite literally well i don't think you have to be that scathing you just show the evidence you just, yeah. you just that, that was the purpose of not to be not to be a kind of anything more than saying well we're reporting back from the field trips that we're doing um and in terms of how the community are using the spaces i presume that with the public they don't have the community they don't have the engagement with the community that the art school did because it is considered to be this kind of monolith I think I think the public is a tragedy, um, and I think that the, there's, there's, there was very um, decent, good people working in it to try and yeah. make it as effective as they possibly could. They weren't the architects of the building; they weren't the people who, who put the money in, but they were trying to make it work and make it function. But the reality was, it was it was unaffordable because not only these buildings cost a lot of money to build, they cost a huge amount of money to run. And this is in a town with no public railways, this right? And there's no like municipal swimming pool or anything? It has, a, it has a tram link to Birmingham, but it's not somewhere that's that easy to get to. And so, you know, you might start to question what, 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 you know, why you would build such a, such a huge structure in that, in that environment. I mean, another example of that is down in Margate. Um, John, have you been down there towards the Turner yeah, Contemporary and then <coughs> the Thanet? Yes, we, we, we have. I mean, I suppose... We didn't go looking for that, this comparison in the first instance. It was just a case of finding the art school buildings and photographing them. But what became increasingly apparent was an awful lot of towns had these very expensive new galleries and, and museums of one kind or another, adjacent to very often, you know, sort of n- no longer used art schools. And it seems to me that there is an there is an implicit argument there about the changing status of art in in the towns and cities of the UK from a, a, a an idea of art that is somewhere something that you go and study and participate in to something that you go and look at and so that kind of shift from participation to spectatorship seems to be sort of written into those buildings and the comparison between them yeah somehow. and with these star architects as well you know these are buildings to be looked at and photographed they're iconic buildings yeah and then the, 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 i suppose in, in in the same way that the art school buildings have been neglected or sort of are not kind of you know sort of big name Sort of they're the local architects. They're the local architects. They're built out of local materials, and they come and go. Whereas the big name sort of signature building is there, despite where it is. Very often, um, it, it's 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 put there in order to be a kind of flagship for some kind of regeneration project, or some other you know something that's not directly uh, related to the practice. Uh, of art. So I think tied up in this is this idea of regeneration and the idea of like using Soho in uh, London or the lower 
Lower East Side, is it the Lower East Side in, in New York, as these templates of kind of bohemianism and, and this is what drives up prices. Emily, is this something that you've been aware of in your time here in the UK, in this kind of difference between re- the regional arts or the provincial arts and these, you know, places like the RCA, these kind of big name places? Is this a, something that's come through in, in the students, for example, that you're meeting at the RCA? Um, do you mean do they prefer to study in London versus yeah in I mean it's a, the RCA is an interesting place because it mm-hmm. often sweeps up people from the provinces and into the big city and and the, it, that's why it makes it such a fantastic institution because you do have that breadth mm-hmm. but obviously what John and Matthew are talking about uh, is this kind of decline in regional arts practice and it all becoming homogenized into these big institutions or these big places I don't, do you want to talk briefly about yeah, that yeah I mean I think part of it is you know a lot of people just want to be in London right because yeah. because there are so many galleries here so it's not it's not just what you're practicing at college it's what you have access to to see in terms of things um, but then also I think you know there is this really important shift um, within education also maybe within institutions in a way due to funding cuts that um, you know you could see this in the idea of Margate that it's not just you're not participating you're going to see it instead it's you're going to consume these things which is really related to this idea of you know re- money re- into regeneration which is you know possibly like a you know superficial way of addressing deeper problems that could be fixed not just by building a really large you know sort of striking art gallery no matter how good the work they're doing is so i think that i I've obviously like a decline in regional centers in which you could see it as a sort of like community-based sort of hotbed activity. I mean, I don't think that people really think about that as existing any longer. I think this conversation might tie into what we were discussing before the fabulous Nat King Cole track, which was mm-hmm. the idea of organising from below mm-hmm. and the notion of regeneration, people coming, for example, down to Margate, bringing their money, you know, spending it on local restaurants, going to the Turner Contemporary and then leaving again, as opposed to it being kind of gathered in from the town itself and being brought up to the surface. Is that something that we could think about in terms of what Emily was talking about earlier and students doing this? Well, I suppose so, but it's, I suppose the, the, the whole argument about the kind of cultural, culture as the sort of engine of regeneration is very much a kind of pre-recession yeah. idea, you know, and kind of emerges in, through the 1980s, kind of big in New York in the 80s and 90s, and then picked up by New Labour and kind of driven home. As yeah, certainly that massive party in 97 that they had when they got into power yeah. and they invited all the big kind of Britpop people into number 10. It it, it sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Who's going to say we don't want more art galleries? I mean, you know, it it makes you sound like this kind of sort of grumpy old geezer. (laughs) But it's it's an interesting argument because it it, it kind of claims, the, the, the cultural regeneration argument very often claims what were originally kind of low rent sort of neighbourhoods like the Lower East Side or like Soho, which were low rent and, and artists lived there because it was low rent. Yeah. But, to, but to appropriate those kind of historical bohemias and claim that somehow you can reproduce that as a form of sort of cultural activity in the present, it's, it's all sorts of sort of phony, sort of bad faith. Yeah, no, I've se- I live that. down near sort of Camberwell Peckham area and I can certainly see that in the, in the Peckham argument that's floating around there at the moment where people are trying to rename bits of it Peckham Village, for example, mm. which is an extraordinary move, I think, by Foxton's or somebody like that. Mm. <laughs> Matthew? Well, w- one of the things that, going, going back to what we were saying about earlier about London and, 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 if you like, the provinces that, was, that interested us was this sort of dynamic where these regional, modest regional colleges like Yarmouth or Ipswich would actually have there would be a kind of portal through to that world for yes. students who might otherwise think that it was beyond anything that they could imagine. And so going into a building with art school written on it in Ipswich, like Brian Eno did, and many other people did, would become a kind of way through to eventually, you know, perhaps going to the RCA or to coming to live in London or make a record in London or whatever it was. It wasn't that Ipswich was going to be in any sense a, or Great Yarmouth in competition with, with all that. The, the wonder of London but it was a dynamic and what was interesting about that dynamic is that you would have the students who would go through these you know somewhere like Great Yarmouth go like myself end up fortunately work, uh, studying at St Martin's and then going back out 
to these regional places to teach to earn a living and I, and, and, I, and, and this was a, I thought this was quite productive now to some extent this still does happen obviously it's not like there isn't any art education in the regions that's ridiculous loads of it yes but it's not in art school it's in a or it's at its worst it's in something which is doesn't really know what it is it's not a university and it's but not this an is what school. you term the culture sheds well or, well it's it's, it's in an inst- educational sort of soup that sort of vaguely wants to be an international world-class research dynamic enterprise university i think you've hit all the words on higher education and, bingo and, with that. and yeah w- was probably a pretty good art school you know yeah 40 years ago Beth, in terms of looking at the history of art schools, is this striking a chord with you in terms of um, how we think about the regional art school and its relationship to the dynamics of art education? Yeah, so definitely. And the other thing that struck me um, when you were talking a minute ago is that um, the other thing that's disappearing now or beginning to disappear, I think, is a foundation course. There's less and less foundation courses. So not only are the regional art schools, which as a, as a kind of conduit into, into, you know, more art education, higher art education for, for people, not only are, have they all but disappeared, but now the foundation courses are beginning to slowly disappear as well. So the that route in for people who, uh, you know, may not have, a-levels or qualifications and come in through a foundation course that's that's been eaten away too it certainly seems there's a homogenization happening uh, in terms of who is coming through the art schools at the moment um matthew and john thank you very much would you like to introduce our second track which one of you wants to introduce it i'll introduce it okay uh well this book came about because of the um invitation we had to give a talk at kingston um (coughs) university which of course was a great and famous art school and they still do good things there and uh the series was organized by a guy called dean kenning and um so we thought it would be appropriate to play a track from a one of the many art school bands but one that with particular link to kingston and so we've chosen to play um stroll on by the yardbirds and it's the live version featured in blow up thank you That was Stroll On by the Yardbirds, and that was John Beck and Matthew Cornford's choice. You're listening to Paperweight Radio, explorations in visual and material culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, your host, Juliet Christensen. And this is a show in which we explore through conversation with artists, architects, curators, craftspeople, designers, historians and theorists, contemporary research into and with images and objects and themes in visual and material culture. Don't forget that you can follow the images and objects that we're talking about today and see some links to other books and ideas on paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com and we tweet through at Paperweight News. If you want to join the conversation, we use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. Our third and final guest for today is Emily Labarge. Emily is a writer based in London and she's currently a full-time PhD student in critical writing in art and design at the Royal College of Art, where her topic is the essay stroke essaying. Prior to her studies, Labarge was Associate Director of the Ancient and Modern Gallery in London and she contributes to a number of publications and occasionally teaches at the RCA, Kingston and Christie's Education in London. Hello Emily, welcome. Hello. Hi. So the reason um, I thought it might be interesting for you to come on and talk in the context of the art school is because you are involved in this critical writing and art and design programme at the RCA and your doctoral project is based in the humanities department there. So I wanted to ask you first off, what for you is important in how the humanities are disciplined when they are located in an art school? Um, and how is your practice of writing shaped by being in an art school? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of one of the key reasons behind why I decided to go to the RCA uh, rather than try and study within an English department or an art history department, um, because there are sort of particular rules based um, on sort of modes of expression that I was interested in 
uh, exploring different ways of writing about um, both literature and pieces of art or objects. So critical writing is really unique in that it's not just about, it's not just for writing, it's sort of writing that's critical about how it functions within relationship to other objects. So there's a wide variety of things going on there. Uh, and I found that within the arts college setting, actually, they were um, far more receptive to sort of my proposal than anyone else was because they sort of understood uh, that I was trying to trace um, lines between disciplines. So borrowing from literature to put that within art writing and borrowing from objects to put that within literature, this sort of reflective practice. Um, so I think that that's one of the real strengths of humanities is that a lot of people who are writers and re researchers see engaging with creative objects as a creative process in itself. Uh, and I think that the arts college is far more amenable to that kind of approach. So in terms of, of writing as practice, and I have to say I'm a huge fan of my own doctorate was in the act of writing and the histories of the acts of writing. Um, the act of writing is really at the core of your work. And I was really curious in thinking about how this practice has been perceived among your peers at the RCA who maybe are more studio based. Do they fundamentally kind of understand the notion of writing practice in in sort of equivalent terms to maybe design or fashion or, or art practice? Do, do they get that? Within the humanities? Well, within the college more broadly, I suppose, is what I'm asking. Do they understand the place of critical writing in art and design within? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is a really important question with relationship to the idea of doing a PhD by thesis or by practice. Um, so because I'm in a writing program, I get to kind of... I mean, I think of it as cheating. It's probably um, selling myself short a little bit, but all my material is words. Uh, so I don't have the same kind of rubric of being, you know, a photographer where I produce a body of work and then write about it. So the thesis element of my project is woven into the creative element, which is really tricky because you have to make sure that there's sort of like a sincere balance. But I think um, within my peers who I have contact with, there's a real receptiveness to um, sort of more expressive ways of writing, perhaps, because uh, there can be kind of a clinical relationship or, or a perceived sort of clinical relationship between making a body of work and then having to explain it. Um, and I think because the PhD by practice is actually a fairly new phenomenon and there's lots of different arguments about why it should or should not exist. Um, but of course, people are looking for ways because artists aren't necessarily writers, right? So it's, it's difficult um, and they may want to have recourse to different ways of describing their work. Mm -hmm. Certainly in, in the PhD by practice and that idea of creating new knowledge which is the benchmark for PhDs it's incredibly interesting this shift towards PhD by practice do you have PhD by practice students at Brighton Matthew yes we, <coughs> yes, we do uh, I have had some experience in, in working with, with, with students trying to balance those two things and um, it is a relatively new phenomenon really I mean I know it's been around well relatively new it's been around a while but um, it certainly wasn't something that was ever suggested me to me as a student and I wasn't in and it was only when I started to be much more involved in teaching that it started to be become a you know, subject of some discussion. And, and I think it's quite a live discussion to, still um, because it's, as I've always understood it, a PhD is actually learning to do research. It's a methodology that you learn to do research and apply it. And that's you know, very useful and necessary for lots of subjects. But how that can necessarily impact on an art practice is is you know it can but it doesn't necessarily do so and i think we have one turner prize winning artist with a phd um and then we may have more it may it may become it may become something which is seen as a career trajectory or it may actually result in a whole different type of as we have now in this art in this huge world of art another type of practice altogether I mean, one idea to, to consider in terms of the conversations that we've been having over the last 40 minutes or so is this notion of professionalisation, which is, a, you know, a cause for concern, I think, for, for those people who are looking at PhDs by practice. Is this simply just a qualification that you will need to have in the future to teach at an art school, for example? Well, I would, I would think, I think that would be a shame. I think, I think, I think it'd be a huge shame. I think art schools work best when, or should we say art departments within universities work best when there is a creative dynamic and that dynamic is often built on tension between different people with different outlooks about what art can be I always like the quote by Mike Baldwin from Art and Language when he talked about art schools as being really good places for malingerers <laughs> I'd like a lot more room for the malingerer 
John, malingering? Is this is this your uh, trope? Uh, no, no, not a professional malingerer, no. But, <laughs> like a um, I, I guess you know some of the things that, that, that Emily was saying make me think of, of the rise of creative writing in English departments in the UK in the last decade or so, and similar kinds of arguments uh, that have gone on about the nature of creative writing as a research project uh, and the relationship between the, the practice or the creative bit if you like and the reflective yeah. um, piece and, and, and I guess you know the, the creative writing PhD sounds as close as, I, as a model to, to, to what Emily is talking about that I'm, I'm familiar with but similar arguments and very often um, the way that practice-based research is being treated in art departments is looked at by English departments to see how you might describe a creative writing PhD so that you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of, there's a hardening of disciplinary methodologies in some senses, yeah. but also a kind of a, an open sort of exploration of what other people are doing. I mean, certainly one thing to consider is this split that, that I think we've seen with your work, Beth, as well, in terms of the split between the sort of analytical and the critical and the notion of the creative. And it sort of comes all the way through the subject of the art school, I think. Certainly what you're talking about, PhDs by practice, is that there has to be this kind of uh, intuitive, creative uh, part of it and then also this analytical critical part I mean what is this a very old model of humanism that we're dealing with here is this a, a model that maybe we should be actually critical of it in itself of thinking of creativity and the analytical as two separate compartments well I think you could get rid of the word creative entirely and okay. everything would be a lot easier <laughs> what would you replace it with or would you would you how would you frame it in a different kind of way I think it's worn out. I think that's the it problem. Is you know, so, yeah. Because the, the kind of terms that you just used to describe creativity in, through intuition and so on. Yeah. I mean, those, those are the very terms that are actually kind of getting in the way of breaking down those divisions between kind of reflect, reflective writing, critical writing. And I think that maybe takes us back to this notion of the culture and creative industries yet again of, of you know, of being homogenised and we need to find a different way to articulate. Emily, have, do you have a sense of, of how we can articulate these tensions and ideas and confusions <laughs> just um, to, to go into the last yeah. 10 minutes of the show? I mean, within my own project, I have an idea, but just to pick up on what was just said, creative and analytical are also aren't, you know, they're not polar opposites. They're no. not antinomies, right? So I think this is one of the really key things that I think is important, um, you know, for me about humanities within a within an arts college is that there's a sense that the two are woven together quite intricately. And the idea of them being opposed has something to do with the bizarre idea that uh, we need that it's, you know, art practice is really uncomfortable in institutions in a sense, because the idea of producing a new body of knowledge, the sort of onus of that, which is sort of what is behind the idea of a PhD, generally speaking, you know, this is what they tell you, you need to make an original contribution. And yet there's some kind of slipperiness um, about how we expect materials or materiality to make a new contribution, which is where this kind of written element comes in. So I think it's really important for those distinctions to keep being blurred and to people to have questions about, you know, what kind of knowledge is embedded in which part, you know. I think I'd like to take us slightly backwards as we go towards the end of the show, which is to talk about um, maybe the Coldstream guidelines of the 1960s that came in when art and design education was kind of began to be elevated into sort of a, a formal system, began to, to be, I don't know, consumed or drawn up by universities. Beth, do you briefly want to talk about what that those guidelines did in terms of repositioning art and design education in the early 60s yeah um well prior to that the the qualification that art students studied for was the national diploma in design which was a, a very skills-based qualification so people would there would be um, a lot of drawing from the life and, and learning to paint and sculpt and very much skills based and then with the cold stream changes they 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 wanted to do two things first of all they wanted to raise the standards to make it a, a degree equivalent qualification so they brought in a different qualification called the diploma in art and design but they also wanted to liberalize it in a sense that they wanted to give uh, individual institutions more control over how how they taught and and what they taught and um teaching then became 
it became a much freer activity. It wasn't about teaching skills anymore. And uh, But also the humanities element came in because students who were studying, for example, fine art would then have to learn some art history or doing design. That's right. I think it was history. 15%, I think, of, of the uh, the course and, and the qualification was, was then art history. But that was that was resisted in, in many places and, and eventually uh, fell away. It w- was really replaced by... Um, a broader sense of contextual studies of, of things that might be useful to the art student and and uh, and theory. And so on that note, I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw the show to a close. I would like to thank our guests for today, uh, Beth, John, Matthew and Emily. I'd like to thank Chris Dixon for his excellent engineering, of course. And I'd like to thank you for listening. This has been Paperweight Radio Explorations in Visual and Material Culture. And I have been your host, Juliet Christensen. If you're interested in reading more about our work at Paperweight, do visit our website, paperweightandnewspaper.com or find us on Facebook. Join me again next week when we discuss plastic and playing out tonight is Emily do you want to just quickly say the title of it Uh, Metastasis by Yanis Anakis a Greek composer thank you very much are listening to Resonance FM 104.4 London. Resonance FM 104.4 London's first radio art station. <laughs>